Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Edinburgh and welcome to this evening's Medical Detectives Lecture. It is the last one uh, for this year. And I, I'm sure most of you will know that the Medical Detectives series is inspired by the work of Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, who was a medical student and indeed a, a medical graduate of this university. And indeed, we think, though we're not absolutely certain, that he attended lectures uh, in this very theatre. Certainly he could have done, but we don't actually know that he did. <laughs> uh, the timing is right. And he claimed that his idea of the deductive reasoning of Sherlock Holmes, where he pieced together uh, the answer to a puzzle from various small clues, uh, was something that he had seen in the people who lectured to him in the medical school, who explained that this is how they had built up the picture of the causes of disease and the causes of death and people who died. And that's really why we call this the Medical Detectives Lectures. Uh, and really, we think that the advances that there have been in medicine, and there have, of course, been many, are based similarly on building together a series of clues. So I think you're going to say that's not what happens with this particular subject. Uh, this evening, our speaker is Professor Peter Sanderko, who, who is a specialist in stroke. He's going to talk of, about the mystery of treatments for stroke, that the answer is in the numbers. Stroke is, as you will all know, a very common disorder. In fact, I doubt very much if there are many people in the audience who don't know someone in their own acquaintance who have suffered from this condition. But things have improved in recent years because of the sort of work that Peter will describe. So Peter, can I ask you to go ahead? Thank you very much. It's, it's always a bit daunting to take on a historical precedent like Arthur Conan Doyle and the famous detective. And as Eva's already said, he operated by deductive logic. He saw a man who'd got red clay on his shoes and deduced that he'd walked across the, the quarry, which indeed he had. And that, if this, then that, is one way of trying to solve mysteries. And what I'm going to be talking about tonight is using what we call empirical evidence, or the, number from the numbers you derive from experiments to answer questions, which is a very different approach to solving mysteries. So I'm going to start by just counting strokes, because before you've counted the disease, you don't really know how common it is and what it's like. And then the challenge of trying to detect the effects of treatments on patients. And we'll keep coming across this problem of needing very large numbers. Along the way, we'll, you'll hear about some heroes and some villains. And as we come to the, towards the end, um, you'll begin to see a picture of massive international collaboration to tackle this global problem of stroke. And leave you with perhaps a question to decide whether the search has ended or only just beginning. So we'll go back to 1829 to Dr. Blackmore of Plymouth. And he was a physician who ran a dispensary and he counted the number of people with different diseases that he treated at his dispensary. And he was interested to know what happened, whether they lived or died. And this is from his book, The Diseases of Plymouth. And you can see at the top there, apoplexy, which was what stroke was called in those days. 
and he counted the number of patients, and he was interested not just in the patients that he saw at the dispensary, but the number that came into the hospital, and he was trying to build up a picture of all the diseases, including stroke. So my research into stroke started back in the 1980s, uh, a rather long time ago now, in Oxford. And so there are the dreaming spires of, of Oxford. And the question that we were trying to answer then was, how many new strokes a year are there in the UK? And so to, to do that, we were counting the number of people who had a stroke in Oxfordshire. And at that time, stroke was considered largely untreatable. So a patient with a stroke would be stuck at the end of the ward and really nothing very much would happen to them. One of the things that I really learned very quickly was that stroke is extremely diverse. While there were folks who did have disabling strokes, there were others, this was a retired teacher who lived in a caravan with her two pet donkeys who had an extremely mild stroke and there she was back looking after her donkeys very shortly after it had happened. And the other thing that we began to realize as we scanned patients with strokes is that the way the brain is affected by stroke varies enormously. So you can have large areas of damage due to blockage of an artery that look like that, or small areas or large areas of damage caused by a hemorrhage. So you can see down here this white blob, that's a, a small area of bleeding in the brain. So stroke was very diverse, and that creates a problem if you're trying to measure the effects of treatment. So this is what we found back in 1980. Now, the triangles that you see at the top here are cerebral infarction, or the strokes due to blockage of a, uh, an artery in the brain. And what is important to realize that stroke is a disease of older people, and this is a, this is a logarithmic scale. So this is, uh, as you go from here to here, your risk of stroke uh, is multiplied by 10, and it goes on going up, and we've now we can correct that graph, it keeps going up. So that when you do the, the maths, we calculated then that there were about 130,000 new strokes each year in the UK, that is one every four minutes. And of those, about 30,000 were people aged over 80. So really quite a challenge to think about how we were going to treat that. So I moved to Edinburgh in 1998, and very shortly afterwards, I we really felt it was time to move on from just counting strokes to, to look for an emergency treatment that we could give to a wide variety of people with stroke. There were so many of them, we needed something that was simple. And so the philosophy of thinking about treatments in those days um, was rather influenced by people like Paul Ehrlich, who uh, in the early part of the 20th century was looking for treatments for infection. And he was looking for treatments that killed the germ, but didn't harm the rest of the body. And he discovered salvarsan, which was an agent, a chemical agent, which turned out to be an effective cure for syphilis. And the way that the treatment was evaluated, he had seven patients with syphilis, he gave them the drug, and they all got better. Now that's obviously a drug a bit like penicillin. If you've got severe pneumonia that's likely to kill you and you have penicillin, you don't need big experiments to tell you it works. And so this idea that there could be magic bullets for all diseases was quite prevalent. And so in stroke, uh, people started looking for treatments for stroke back in the 1950s with formally designed evaluations of treatments for stroke but it rapidly became apparent that there were no magic bullets for stroke. 
and therefore there was a need to think of a different way, think, think about the problem in a different way by applying the science of numbers. So let's begin with a simple drug like aspirin. It's simple, it's safe, we know lots of people can take it without adverse effects, but if we say, well, what happened if it had a rather small effect? And let's say for every 1,000 stroke patients we treated, between 20 and 40 might have their life saved by that simple treatment. If you then multiply that out across Europe and the, 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 uh, uh, Europe, you might perhaps save 300,000 lives over, over a decade. So if you, a very simple treatment applied to a very large number of people, even if the effect is very modest, could be well worth having. So if you're trying to prove that a treatment has a very small effect, um, we need to do a thought experiment. Now, we'll go back to heart attacks in the 1980s. Now, in the 1980s, we didn't have any treatments for heart attacks, apart from admitting people to hospital. And on average, if out of every 100 patients with a heart attack, about 12 would be expected to have another heart attack or die within the next month. So nasty disease. So if we were thinking about a trial of aspirin in patients with heart attack, what might the numbers look like? So let's think of a hypothetical trial in which we take 100 patients with heart attack and give them aspirin, and we get another 100 patients to avoid taking aspirin because there might be some harmful effects. Now, as I said, on average, 12% of patients might be expected to die uh, without treatment. And in our trial, our study, we observed that 10 people, that's 10%, had uh, a new heart attack uh, without aspirin and 12% with aspirin. In other words, there seemed to be more heart attacks with aspirin. Now, you might say, oh, aspirin doesn't work. It's actually harmful. Um, but then you think, well... Could that, arisen, could that result have arisen by the play of chance? And so you can do a thing called a test of statistical significance, and that gives you the answer as to whether that could arise by, just by the play of chance and not be anything to do with the effect of the treatment. So let's imagine repeating the experiment on a rather larger scale. Let's take 1,000 patients this time, 500 with no aspirin, uh, 500 with aspirin, and we happen to get the result the other way around. So 12% with without aspirin have, uh, die or have another heart attack, and 10% with aspirin. Now, that's a 2% difference in what's quite nasty, another heart attack or dying within 30 days. But still, that experiment isn't big enough. We haven't proved it beyond reasonable doubt that the treatment is really working for the benefit of the patient. So here's a hero. This chap is Professor Sir Richard Pito, a professor of statistics at Oxford. And he was very exercised by this problem of doing experiments that could really change the world. And he realized that if you were going to treat a really common disease like heart attacks with a very simple drug like aspirin, then you would need to do it on a... You would, your experiment would need to be several orders of magnitude larger than anything that had been done before. And so... He, uh, with many colleagues in Oxford, designed a study which was, was destined to recruit almost 20,000 people who, were, uh, who developed symptoms of a heart attack within the previous 48 hours. So this is really groundbreaking research. And here's what they got. 
So this is a curve, uh, what's called a cumulative mortality plot. So this is patients entering the study at uh, the time that they had their heart attack, and then they're followed up for five weeks after their heart attack started. And without any treatment, uh, just routine hospital care, 13% were dead. So you can see the numbers of deaths rising. Among those that were given aspirin, the death rate, remarkably, was reduced down to about 10%. Now, in this study, they also tested another drug called streptokinase, which is a clot-busting drug. Heart attacks are due to a blocked artery in the heart, and streptokinase is a drug that unblocks the arteries, a sort of chemical dyno rod. And interestingly, the effect of aspirin was about the same as the effect of streptokinase. And what was really dramatic was when you gave both drugs, the effect was, the, the effect was additive. So effectively, you were reducing 13% dead down to just about 8% dead. So among patients with heart attack, aspirin alone was saving 20 lives for every 1,000 patients treated. And the combination was saving about 40 per 1,000. So that's really remarkable finding. And of course, that changed the treatment of heart attacks worldwide. The problem is in stroke, not all strokes are due to blocked arteries in the brain. And we didn't have the same sort of coronary care facilities that pa with, for patients with stroke at that time. So we, we then asked the question, and this is in the early 1990s, should we be treating patients with acute stroke whose symptoms began within the last 48 hours? Should we start them all on aspirin immediately, or should they wait a few weeks before starting it for long-term prevention? And to cut a long story short, we followed the lead from, of the cardiologist and said, we need to do a really large worldwide experiment to try and test this idea. And it took us six years. It was a, a, an international collaboration involving four countries, four con continents, 36 countries, 467 hospitals, and 19,435 patients from all of those places volunteered to help us with the study. And these are some of the doctors who, who helped us. And the answer from all of that was a little disappointing. Aspirin wasn't having the sort of 20 per thousand or 40 per thousand effect that we'd hoped for. But nonetheless, it was about 12 per thousand avoided being either dead or needing help for everyday activities. And an additional 10 made a complete recovery. So a modest effect, but nonetheless something that was worth having. And so that is now, that's now been incorporated into routine practice. So in 1997, after we'd finished that trial, really we thought we need to do better. We need to look, start looking for magic bullets. Aspirin is fine, but we must do better. So we return to the plumbing, to the blocked artery in the brain, and uh, we'll now have a look at that. Now, before we do that, perhaps just refresh your memories on what is a stroke. So as I said earlier, the most common type of stroke, about 85%, occur when a blood vessel in the brain is blocked, and that we call that an ischemic stroke. And what then happens is that causes a lack of blood supply to the part of the brain that, that the artery supplies, and that part of the brain then stops working. So that may cause paralysis or loss of speech or loss of vision. And if the blood supply is not promptly restored, then damage occurs, and the damage may be disabling or fatal. So to clarify this, I need some help from my colleagues in the Brain Imaging Research Centre, 
uh, and the Brain Imaging Research Centre here at the University of Edinburgh at the Western and now also based at the Royal Infirmary has done some really groundbreaking research on what happens to the brain in stroke. So this is what a skull x-ray might look like and if we impose the, the, the blood vessels on that you can see that there are major blood vessels carrying blood into the hemispheres of the brain. And what happens when you have a stroke, and this is imaged without any injections, this is imaged with uh, magnetic resonance imaging, so very clever imaging. And that's what happens when a stroke occurs. The blood supply is blocked, and the arrow shows you where the artery is blocked. So there's a blood clot sitting there, depriving really quite a large amount of brain of its blood supply. And so we then need to move from the plumbing to what happens to the, 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 the clockwork, if you like. So that's what it looks like immediately after the brain, uh, the, the stroke has occurred and the, the, the artery is blocked. It looks relatively normal, but to a practiced eye, it's not quite normal. And if it remains untreated, then the, the brain is really quite seriously damaged and it swells and it causes all sorts of trouble. So when you're thinking about clot-busting drugs or thrombolytic drugs, we're looking effectively to try and cure stroke or at least mitigate the damage in a much more dramatic way than you might with aspirin. So again, this is a picture of the arteries in the brain. So what's happened here, this is a bit more invasive. Uh, the, we've taken the patient down to the x-ray suite and put a catheter into their artery and injected some dye and the dye flows through the arteries, uh, but it's not flowing through the artery here where the arrow is, it's blocked. So you then give the clot-busting drug, and bingo, uh, the blood supply to the brain is restored. And the patients often get dramatically better when you do that. They may suddenly get up off the table and walk away, almost Lazarus-like effect, sometimes. And that's the problem. Not it doesn't work for everybody. So the, the other problem is injecting this stuff directly into the artery is a complicated business. You have to get them to an x-ray department. You have to have a big team ready and waiting for them, ready to uh, do all the invasive things to get the drug into the artery. So our own work had suggested that wasn't going to be feasible, and what we needed to do was something simpler. So give the drug into the vein. And the drug we, we became interested in is called TPA, or uh, Actilize, and when we started our trial, there were some small trials. Now, bearing in mind the heart attack trials had recruited tens of thousands of patients. The trials in stroke were very small, and I perhaps uh, put that in the context. Worldwide, there are about 16 million strokes a year. So if you're trying to decide a treatment strategy for 16 million strokes a year, you need evidence on a reasonably large number of patients. And so, you know, these studies were involving a few hundreds of patients. And I'll just explain this presentation in a little bit more detail. So what we have here is on the right of this vertical line is an indication that the treatment is actually harmful, and to the left of that vertical line, an indication the treatment is beneficial. What you'll also notice is that there's a blue square and that sort of says, well, that's the estimate of what, whether it's on the side of benefit or harm. So all the four blobs were on the right side of the line. The smallest trial 
recruited a very small number of patients. And so the line it's associated with is very long, and that's called a confidence interval. And that basically says the line crosses the line, crosses the vertical line of no effect, and therefore we can't exclude the possibility that it's harmful. The, the play of chance means this result is very unreliable. That result looks more reliable. The, line, the, the confidence interval is narrow. That one crosses the line, and that one... So you can see there's variation in the estimate of what the treatment effect is. So this generated a huge amount of debate. Was it working? Was it not working? Who did it work in? This, was this NINDS trial was done in the United States, and the United States Food and Drug Administration moved very rapidly to approve the treat this treatment. But it not approved in other parts of the world. And that's why these European trials were done. And they still didn't fully resolve the question, on a global scale, should we be giving this treatment or not? And so uh, what happened subsequently further put the cat among the pigeons because there were these two trials which were suggesting rather more definitively that there was going to be harm. So in 1998, we said we need to take the large trial approach to this. And our kind of working hypotheses in 1998 were in patients with acute ischemic stroke, the benefits of early thrombolysis, that is getting the treatment in as fast as you can, would result in more patients being alive and independent in activities of daily living, not needing help. And that would outweigh the risks because clot-busting drugs do carry a risk of bleeding in the brain, which of course can be fatal or disabling. And so one has to make some difficult decisions. How do, the, how do the risk and benefit balance out? The benefit of treatment is greater the earlier patients are treated, but because many stroke patients were not arriving early at hospital, we wanted to see whether they might still benefit if they perhaps arrived up between five and six hours after their symptoms first began. So we said, to answer that question really reliably, we need between three and 6,000 patients treated within the first, recruited to a research study, either to receive the drug or to receive uh, dummy treatment um, within six hours of their first stroke symptoms. That's a challenging, that's a challenging question. And here is the, the rocky road that we followed to actually engage the participation of lots of clinicians around the world to help us answer that question. So we started out in a small way in Edinburgh and we got a few hundred patients and that gave us the confidence to apply for sufficient money from the Medical Research Council and other agencies to recruit more patients. But along the way, some villains were trying to get in our way and the villains were the regulators because all of a sudden the regulation of research became very burdensome and this slowed us down while we had to re-engineer the trial to make sure we were compliant with the regulations and we were hit again by a further set of regulations in 2005, which again slowed us right down. So we, instead of taking this faster track, we, we slowed. But we, after a lot of effort and a lot of help, we got going. And we made our, our, one of our targets, which was 3,000 patients. And uh, that was with the help of the medic, chiefly with the Medical Research Council. And as I said, it was an international effort. The UK did extremely well. It recruited nearly 1,500 patients, but we had colleagues in Poland, Italy, Sweden, Norway, Australia. And I'm delighted that one of the members of the audience, actually a lay member of the audience, really helped us um, through the process of making sure that we were 
being ethical in the conduct of this research, which involved the participation of patients who had had a stroke. Now, when you produce scientific results, you generally expect comments after they've been produced, rather than before. Now, for a number of reasons, which I won't go into, this trial that we were conducting, this study to try and work out whether patients should be treated with these clot busters or not, received a lot of criticism. And uh, my American colleague, um, Dr. Patrick Lydon, a very eminent American doctor who'd been involved in the American trial that showed clot-busting drugs were helpful in the States, wrote a commentary in anticipation of IST3, and my heart sank when I saw the title. I was relieved to see that he made some positive comments. We were a highly dedicated, rigorous group of investigators. We were refreshingly transparent. We succeeded in recruiting the largest acute stroke thrombolysis population ever, and we deserve to be congratulated. So I've sort of relieved a bit. But he said something which I'll come back to in a minute, which made my heart sink. Um, so lots of people were very interested in the trial results. And we had lots of criticisms, we had lots of problems. Uh, this World War II government message was extremely helpful to keep the troops going through all of those many years of difficulty. And the result, well, we did confirm that this treatment, although it is potentially very beneficial, carries a risk. About one in 33 will die from bleeding in the brain with clot-busting treatment. So it is to be given by people who are trained, who understand what to do with it, and who explain to the patients that this treatment is not aspirin. So many medical treatments carry a risk, and what people who are going to be thinking about this treatment or whether their relatives should receive this treatment need to be informed. So we've, we provided a pretty clear estimate of what the risks are. So what are the benefits? It, and every treatment, you balance risk and benefit. And because we didn't recruit our 6,000 patients, the statistical test for significance, if you like, of the difference didn't quite reach significance. Among those who received the control, 35% were alive and independent. So uh, that's two-thirds were not. So we were treating patients who'd had nasty strokes. But among those who had received the treatment, 2%, 2% more, 37%, were, were alive and independent as a result of treatment. So we could say, well, actually, when you do the maths exactly, it's about 14 more people for every 1,000 you treat appear to be uh, alive and independent as a result of treatment. And that's a slightly disappointing result. But we also looked at the data in a little bit more detail because, of course, there are grades of difficulty and disability after a stroke. And this is expressed in this scale so at this right-hand end, that's if you die from your stroke, and this is at about six months. 16% six, without treatment had very severe disability and really needed constant care and attention. And those over here were independent. So the, these grades here were independent. And what you can see is that among those that had TPA, there was no difference in deaths overall, but the grades of disability were shifted so that if everybody who had the treatment was more likely to be uh, less disabled as a result of treatment. And that was evident at six months, and we followed up people for 18 months, and that trend was still there. So that this treatment 
had a significant effect. And when you look at the improvement in disability at six months and 18 months, that does reach the test of statistical significance. And this didn't arise by the play of chance. This is a real effective treatment. And it's a treatment benefit that persists. And not, we thought that really trying to explain that to people was going to be quite difficult because you know, it's a scale, or you're going to be less disabled, or you're going to need less help. So we also asked some very simple questions. Did you, do you need help to walk? And among those not treated, 40% said they did, but with the treatment at six and 18 months, more people were able to walk without help. And that's a big plus for people who've had a stroke. What about the difference in needing help from another person in everyday activities? People want to be independent and not depend on others. And again, that was an effect that was worth having and um, a, a result that was not due to the play of chance. And again, the proportion reporting being left with any kind of problems of any description was also improved. So then, if we're thinking, okay, this treatment works, how are we going to implement it in practice? How much time have we really got? And from the, the basic science of stroke, we know that um, time is brain. If you block an artery in the brain, the nerve cells are dying, and the longer you leave them, the more will die. And so prompt treatment is what you might well predict is... Um, the key here in treatment of stroke. Now, what the American trial had shown was that treat, it was treatment within three hours really mattered, and they also showed that within an hour and a half, treatment was even better. And so Dr. Leiden was very critical of our trial because he said we couldn't possibly reaffirm or refute what they'd shown in America. Well, I was delighted to say that we could. And so if we look at all the evidence from all of the trials before IST3, and this is my colleague, Professor Joanna Wardlaw, who's worked over the last 20 years to keep all of the information about all of the trials of thrombolysis for stroke in an up-to-date and scientifically rigorous way. So in the five trials before IST3, there were, there were about 1,000 patients who'd been treated within that golden three-hour period, and the effect of treatment on being alive and independent was very clearly on the side of benefit. What did IST3 show? Well, among patients treated within three hours, again, the estimative effect was very clearly on the side of benefit. Um, without treatment, 23% were alive and independent, but with treatment, uh, a whopping 31% were alive and independent. So it did, contrary to Dr. Leiden's expectations, affirm the benefits of treatment within three hours. Put another way, for every 1,000 patients that get treatment within three hours, 80 more will be alive and independent. And that is well worth having. And that, despite the early risks. So it, that's a very important piece of information for people, for doctors, for families, when faced with a potentially disabling stroke and trying to make the decision about, should I have this potentially dangerous treatment, on average, early treatment is going to be very effective, despite the risks. 
The other thing which we did in, in the IST3 trial, which was new, was to follow up patients for up to uh, 18 months, and we're still following patients uh, in the UK. And what was very interesting was this is the, again, as in that heart attack trial I showed you right at the beginning, this is what's called a cumulative mortality plot. And what you can see is that among those who were given the treatment, in the very early phase, there were rather more deaths. So we, we cannot escape the fact that, that there is a hazard. But if you, had, if you were treated within three hours, on average, fewer people, uh, more people survived and there were fewer deaths over the following 18 months. So it is a life-saving treatment if given early. And that really is, I think, spectacular news. Okay, so I've talked about the global problem of stroke, 16 million strokes a year worldwide, and the need for international collaboration to try and improve the care of strokes worldwide. Now, I've shown you some data from work to try and put all of those, that information together. But it became clear as our trial was coming to an end that we needed really to work with all of the people who'd done trials to, to get our scientific data into one place and analyze it uh, in greater detail to actually get the maximum benefit from it. And this is really a new theme for science. Um, international collaboration to assemble data from all around the world to get as much data together, to get the numbers as big as you can get them. And this was very exciting because it required a sales pitch on my behalf. I had to go to the company, Boehringer Ingelheim, and all the various people who'd done trials, some very eminent scientists, and say, are you prepared to share your data with me if I share my data with you? And it was quite a long process. And it took two years to get to this point. And this is me in Biberach, Germany, which is the home of Boehringer Ingelheim, the company that makes the drug. And this is Erich Blumke, the statistician. So what's happening here is that I am giving Erich Blumke a CD with all of the data from our trial, anonymized, so that individual patients can't be recognized. And he is likewise giving me an anonymized data set of all the trials that the, the company hold relating to this drug for patients with stroke. So after two years' work, we got to that point. That happened in 2012. And then we had a summit meeting in London of all of the people who'd run the trial. So these are some very, very eminent uh, physicians in stroke medicine from around the world. And we then looked at the results. And it was very nice. So we essentially doubled the world evidence base on the effects of clot-busting drugs for stroke. That's about 7,000 patients. And as I've mentioned at the beginning, about a third of all strokes occur in people over the age of 80. But before the IST3 trial, only 3% of the patients, the, these 3,000 patients, were aged over 80. So really a very small evidence base to, make, to help patients and families make decisions about whether people over 80, who might be frail or fragile, in whom the risks might be higher. And so it was very difficult to give them really reliable evidence and guidance on whether they should be treated or not. So our trial, about half the patients were aged over 80. So that was, uh, that was about 1,700 patients. So we added a lot of information about the effects in older people. We added a lot of information about early treatment, rather contrary to Dr. Leiden's suggestion. And we also um, 
we're also assessing the effects of treatment in a fairly a moderately severe, so there's a severity scale, uh, and 12 is a moderately severe stroke. So, and the average time to treatment in our trial and in the previous trials was around four hours. And what, with this worldwide collection of data we managed to establish, was again confirming that benefit really was greatest with early treatment. So if we look at the odds for having a minimal, minimal or no symptoms, so this is a scale here, this is the line, the estimate if you like, and the further up it is, the greater the benefit, and this is time, time to treatment. So if you can be treated within the first three, three hours, the benefits are substantial, and there's scope for benefit out to about five hours now. After five hours, there is, there is a possibility of benefit, but there's also a possibility of harm. Uh, and we'll come back to that perhaps later in the questions. So what's the, the answer to life, the universe, and everything? Or what's the overall effect from all the high-quality evidence on the effect of TPA in people with an acute ischemic stroke? Is there a single number that encapsulates this? Well, I have to turn to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For those of you that read science fiction about 20 years ago, you might recall Douglas Adams' very amusing book uh, of a hitchhiker, a, a, a man hitchhiking across the galaxy, and he finds the Hitchhiker's Guide, and when he turns it on, it has this comforting message, don't panic. And he asks it the question, what's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? Uh, and we'll come to how we get to that answer. So you might recall I showed you that spectrum of disability among patients who were treated and not treated. And some statisticians, George Howard, who's a very amiable um, uh, American statistician from Alabama, a lovely man, worked out this method and you can see there's lots of numbers there, um, as to are people better off on average if they get the treatment within six hours or not? And the sums look like this. For every 1,000 patients treated with TPA rather than control within, 42 hours, uh, within six hours, 405 would be expected to have a better outcome with treatment, and 232 would be expected to have the same outcome and 363 would expect it to have a worse outcome. So if you do the maths, 42 per thousand would be better off with treatment. So that, that's how we get to the number 42, which is, of course, the same as what, if you ask the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, what's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? So it works, and that's, that's an estimate of what it does up to six hours. But as I've said, treatment within three hours is what matters. So if we then just think about what we really want to achieve in practice, which is treating people within three hours when the treatment is most likely to work, let's take a group of 100 stroke patients. And I'm grateful to my colleague, Dr. John Emerson at the University of, Ed of Oxford, who I've worked with on these statistical data. So suppose that 25 patients, the yellow dots, would have had a good outcome that is, having minimal or no disability without treatment, and six would have died without treatment within the first week, the red dots. If they'd all been given TPA within three hours, the number recovering would rise to 35, the orange dots, and two extra would die from an intracerebral hemorrhage within the first few days. So that on balance, you can see the benefit is 
that the, the equation is definitely towards the benefit despite the risk. Research is all very well, but what you need to do is prove that it has impact, and this is impact in London. And as a result of all of this work, the entire stroke system in London was re-engineered to make sure that people could get to hospital quickly and receive this treatment. And, of course, efforts are going on across all of Scotland, uh, across the UK, to maximise the proportion of patients who do receive thrombolysis. These data in London are particularly spectacular. It's easier to achieve this in London because there was massive reorganisation, travel times are relatively short, and you can reach the capital fairly easily. And they're now achieving about 20% of patients who, who receive thrombolysis. So that is really remarkable. Because of the variable nature of stroke, it's probable that not more than a quarter to a third of all stroke patients probably benefit from this treatment um, or are likely to be treated um, for a number of reasons. Um, lots of strokes are very mild. Lots of, a proportion of strokes are due to bleeding in the brain anyway who can't have thrombolysis and so on. But that, I think, is, is a real testament to the power of big numbers in really changing clinical practice. Uh, and I think that's, that, that to have played a part in that, I think, is hugely rewarding. So to come back to the beginning, our questions in 1998 were, in patients with mild, moderate, or severe stroke, on average, do the benefits of early TPA within six hours outweigh the risks? Yes. Benefit of treatment is greatest the earlier patients are treated. And yes, this treatment can be implemented in the NHS. And that, that's a really gratifying result after more than 30 years of work. Um, but when you do this sort of research, we depend not just on our colleagues at the university. We depend on all sorts of funding agencies. And I do apologize to Chest Heart and Stroke Scotland because that's their old logo. And you'll meet them outside. We received support from the Medical Research Council, the Stroke Association, and a number of other uh, organizations. This trial was done without the support of a drug company. This was done with public money and charitable money. And I think it underlines um, how important uh, both the medical charities and the Medical Research Council are in undertaking research that is of global significance. And, uh, on that, I'd like to close with some picture credits to the Sherlock Holmes Museum for the, for the use of the silhouette and to thank you for your attention. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. That was very interesting and it was encouraging. So nice to have one where we've actually got a treatment that's actually improved in the recent past that can actually be delivered to people who are here, you know, in Edinburgh and could be affected tomorrow. That doesn't happen a lot. No, it doesn't. <laughs> that was very, very nice to hear. Would you like to take one or two questions I'm, just now? I'd be happy to answer to... questions now, but also afterwards Outside over afterwards. a cup of tea. Have we got any questions? Yes, no, I know we have to give you the... Give the mic to the gentleman. Uh, we'll get there in a Do you want to have a look? The technology is always challenging. Um... Oh, there we are. 
That's it. There it is, it's lit up. It, give it a minute. Yeah. There we go, it's live. Well, the question better be worth it now. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, fascinated by the uh, application of the empirical approach and how it led from one question to another uh, after revealing an effect of aspirin generally to more specifically to thrombolysis. Has the next question been asked um, predictors and preventers of stroke using the empirical approach? Yes, I mean, um, I didn't talk about it, but of course what led up to looking for treatments for people who are having a stroke was working on things that might prevent stroke. So at a global level, um, we know that the things that increase the risk of stroke are high blood pressure, overweight, inactivity, smoking, and so on. And there are, if you've had warning symptoms of a stroke, you can take aspirin, you can have cholesterol-lowering drugs, blood pressure-lowering drugs. All of that came from empirical clinical research. And at a global level, um, we now know that reducing your salt intake uh, and trying to get the population at a population level to reduce salt intake, which means persuading McDonald's and the manufacturers of bread to put less salt in their food, and food manufacturers not to use trans fats. And so there's lots of empirical evidence has given us all sorts of things that can help us be healthy, uh, both in prevention and in treatment. And of course, the other thing is that this has led on to the next series of questions. Well, if you can't treat everybody with a clot buster or a clot buster doesn't work, what about sorting out the plumbing with dyno rod? So there are now advanced dyno rod technology which you can put inside an artery to ret retrieve the blood clot. And the Dutch have just shown that it works to our utter amazement. So um, for those who don't respond to clot busting treatment, the next stage will be uh, retrieving the clot with a micro dyno rod. But we can perhaps talk about that over tea. Yes. How long does it take to do the diagnosis to know whether it's appropriate for someone? If you have to get the therapy to them, ideally you said within an hour, or an hour and a half even, not just three hours. Okay, that's a very good question. Um, I now take part of the acute stroke service at, at the Royal Infirmary, and it's very exciting because we, we go down to accident and emergency with my walkie-talkie. You know, for a, for a neurologist who's used to just walking around the end of the bed and tapping people's reflexes and making a diagnosis, actually doing something is very exciting, especially with the walkie-talkie. Sorry. So what, what, what happens now is we've engineered the systems in Edinburgh to try and get patients to hospital as quickly as possible, so that the ambulance crew will give us advance warning there's somebody coming in who might have a stroke. So that everybody's alerted and we wait at the front door or we arrive at the front door shortly after the patient's arrived. And what we then try and do is find out from the patient or their relatives what happened. And actually just knowing the story that something happened suddenly that some part of the brain clearly stopped working, they developed a weakness down one side, or they stopped speaking. That's an immediate indication, sudden onset of affecting the face, arm, speech, suggests it could be a stroke. So that, if you like, that's a very efficient early warning system, just what symptoms the patients had, and did they come on suddenly? And the Stroke Association, Chest, Heart and Stroke, have done a public awareness campaign to raise awareness of those symptoms. So people now recognize that much more quickly, and get to hospital. And once they're there, 
the process of doing a scan to see is there bleeding in the brain or is this stroke due to blocked artery takes really only a few minutes. And in Helsinki, they've got the, treat, the treatment time down to about 20 minutes from arriving at the front door. We're not quite as fast as that in Edinburgh, but we're, not, we're getting there. So we have a target set by the NHS Scotland that there should be... an 80% of patients should be treated within an hour of arriving at the front door. So we call that a door-to-needle time. So we have a door-to-needle time target of 80%, and we're, we're not far off that now. Yeah, 24-7. It's a very straightforward CT scanner. So for most patients, a good old-fashioned X-ray CT scanner is fine, provided you've got a clear story and a reasonably basic clinical examination. It is very straightforward, fortunately. There's another question up there from Mrs. Goodair. steering committee as a layperson, but I was only brought in halfway. Um, but um, I'm delighted that the results have come out so positively. Um, the, the only thing that still bothers me a wee bit is the question of informed consent, because, I mean, as the previous speaker was saying, um, it's all a bit of a, a rush to um, get the correct diagnosis. Um, and if you're very lucky and you, you get to hospital quickly, then perhaps it might take another half hour to, to decide whether it's a, 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 a bleed or a, <clears throat> or a clot. And then, after that, well, would you like to, take, to, to have this, uh, this treatment? Um, and then you've probably poss possibly got an hour at the most to make your mind up. And you might have lost your sight with a stroke, as my husband did. Um, <laughs> And so you have to rely on your, your nearest and dearest to, to read the, um, the leaflet and, and so on and so on. It's quite a burden on the, on the patient or the carer or the next of kin. Um, I'm just wondering whether you've um, made any changes to the information leaflet since the, the ending of the trial and, um, you know, what problems you've encountered, if any, about this, this whole business of informed consent, because it, you know, it does need a bit of weighing up. Um, yes, I th it's a very good point. Um, I think, in simple terms, we don't, we, when you're inviting people to take part in a research project, you provide written information about the research project and the nature and the somewhat uncertain balance of risk and benefit. We now produce much simpler information, which is easier to digest in a hurry. And usually, actually, it, it is a surprisingly straightforward decision for quite a lot of people. I'll illustrate this with a 70-year-old man who came in unable to speak. And he came, fortunately, with his family. So we, that, that's always a problem. If your patient can't speak or they've had a, a reasonably severe stroke, they may not be clear enough about what's happened. So it's important if the family come with them. And we always try and keep the family and the patient together. Anyway, he couldn't speak, and he was clearly very agitated about not being able to speak. Now, we, I said to his wife, look, this is a treatment that has a risk, and this is what the risk is. Um, what do you think about it? 
And what do you, how do you think your husband would feel about being unable to speak? And he said, he's a very angry Scotsman, and he would be even angrier if he couldn't speak. And I think, you know, he, would, he really would be, in, he, he would be very difficult to live with if he couldn't speak. So I, uh, on balance, you know, we, we had a chat about it. So you're quite right. The chat was a little bit pressured, but I think we took, we took the opportunity to, to, you know, lay out the risks and benefits. And he did reasonably well. It wasn't curative in his case, but he did reasonably well. So I think, in general, if the stroke symptoms pose a sufficient threat to your independence or your livelihood or your well-being, a lot of people are prepared to tr trade off an immediate risk against the prospect of, of better recovery. But there are individuals who are risk-averse, who feel that they've had a good run at life and they're okay as they are. We had a lady who was weak down one side, 75-year-old lady, active golf player, and I was saying, well, look, you know, you might have a bit of trouble with golf with this weakness. And she said, well, yeah, but I'm all right. I don't like the idea of a risk. And uh, she got back to playing golf without the treatment. So, you know, it, it, the decision has to be individualized. What about your relatives? Okay, then you run into a problem. If somebody arrives, if they've got a stroke that's severe enough to merit treatment, they're often not in a position to give a really clear story. And so if you don't have the relatives there, it's really difficult to make that initial decision, this is a stroke that's within a reasonable time. So we get on the phone, you know, we do a bit of detective work, and as I say to my students and trainees, the telephone is an amazing diagnostic instrument, because you can get, you know, if you can speak to a wife or a relative who said, yes, they were fine at 10 o'clock, and we called the ambulance at 10.15, and you know, you're now looking at your watch, it's 10.30, you know, you know it happened half an hour ago. But if there's no one that can be contacted, that often precludes treatment because you simply don't have a start time. But we're now investigating image, advanced imaging techniques. There's another problem. People have strokes during overnight sleep, so they wake up with the symptoms of a stroke and we, therefore we don't know when it started. Was it when they went to bed or during the middle of the night or just before they woke? So we're now trying to, and this is about a, a quarter to a, a fifth of all stroke patients, have their stroke during sleep. So we now need to know, we can't treat them at the moment because we don't know when it started. So we are now looking at in advanced imaging to try and tell us, are there some of these patients who wake up with their stroke, can we treat some of them? So again, very interesting area. Yeah. With your combined data, do you now have enough to be able to identify the correct protocols for over 80s? Um, I think what we know is that the over 80s are likely to benefit to the same extent as uh, younger patients. Um, but we, within that, it's difficult to say which 80-year-olds. Well, we should certainly be offering the treatment to people irrespective of chronological age. And it's probably biological age. There are some extremely uh, vigorous 80-year-olds and some extremely crumbly 60-year-olds. So I think it's more their biological age than their chronological age. And so age itself should not be about a treatment. I'm the head of education programmes at Chest Heart Stroke Scotland, and I work with stroke consultants and neurologists all over Scotland. We're doing some educational packages from ambulance service right through to stroke units, A&E. And I think they would all echo, 
age doesn't make any difference to any of the consultants that I've spoken to. It's about the person, and if they can't assess that person because it's a very severe stroke, then they will speak to the family. Um, and there's a lot of detective work goes on about finding out when someone's had a stroke and, and what they were like before, and they always take that into consideration. Um, and that, that person really needs to enjoy their life and carry on as before. Well, okay. okay, I think it's time for a cup of coffee. It is. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. That was really good. This production is brought to you.